Hey, Culture Hackers, it's Robbie Richman here. Special episode with Scott Schwenk, who's going to be co-hosting with me tomorrow at the Culture Blueprint book launch event at Unplug Meditation Studio in LA at 7 p.m. Jill is going to be back for a future episode. It's Scott and I riffing in preparation for tomorrow. We start off rather esoteric as we warm up, but then get into some really fun co-created conversation. So without further ado, here's the podcast. <laughs> oh, hello, Culture Hackers. It's Robbie Richman, and as you might be able to tell already, we've been having a discussion with our guest today, Scott Schwenk, already. It makes me wish I'd already turned on the recorder because we just get into it. So welcome, Scott. Thanks. Great to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. So you are, how do you describe yourself, a meditation teacher? I actually drive my, drive myself. Sometimes insane and sometimes quite happy I drive myself. But when I describe myself, I would describe myself as an evolutionary coach and a leadership development yeah. person <laughs> and culture architect. Totally. At the big end of the day, it's all under culture architecture. And then I teach meditation or do one-to-one -one coaching or work with business principles. But for me, it's the same set of, same suite of tools. Yeah, totally. Well, I love our conversation. So happy that you're here. And Scott's actually going to be co-hosting with me at the book launch event um, on stage. Woohoo! Yeah. So we'll give people a taste of that because most of the people listening won't get that. And let's let's actually start off with the your idea for how we're going to start off that that conversation. Want to talk about that? Well, let's see. Do we hand out the Kool-Aid at the beginning of our talk or after? <laughs> you love slipping the Kool-Aid joke in every time. Only when it's blueberry. <laughs> Is there blueberry Kool-Aid? No, no blueberry Kool-Aid. Oh, darn it. Okay. How would we start? I think it's useful to start with some way to get everybody in the room through... Well, the, the, the concept of the t like permission to take the pauses. Yeah, to take a pause. A big pause. Uh, so some, you could call it meditation or you could call it presencing. Mm-hmm. Deep breath in, deep breath out. Something like softening through the body. So perhaps, cool. Can you give? Can you do like a like a thirty second one with us right now for people listening? Can we yes. do just a, like a breath or something? This is the elevator med elevator meditation. Yes, going down. Okay. So we're starting at the top of the building. Really, really here, present, doing whatever you've been doing. Take a deep breath in, and exhale long. And as the breath is moving. Soften the soles of your feet with your imagination. The skin, the connective tissue, the muscles, all the way to the bone. Just making it up that it's easy. Mm, feels nice. And softening the palms of the hands in the same way. And the corners of your eyes. And the skin inside and around your ears. The entire pelvic floor and groin region soft. And the tongue resting deeply in the floor of the mouth, softening. Just letting the breath move like water. Coming in deep and going out long. Enjoying that expansion of your own body, nerves, awareness. It's just a subtle shift from the outgoing sympathetic nervous system to the 
parasympathetic nervous system where we have awareness of the future trajectory of action yeah compassion all of that so yeah. here we are here we are really together now yes excellent i love that i mean it, i can imagine how much meetings would be different if everybody sometimes i'll even do that just in a way where i just say let's just do 30 seconds of silence, you know, not even getting into a deep meditation. Let's just do silence for 30 seconds. And that can even just reset and clear the culture of the room. Mm. You know? There's a lot of pull for this to be included in business conversations now. I did a six-week intensive with uh, Otto Scharmer through the Sloan School of Management, MIT. Mm -hmm. And mindfulness and meditative awareness are key components of this work that stands on the shoulders uh, for those of you who are familiar with peter senge's work the fifth discipline the learning organization systems awareness it stands on the shoulders of that totally and includes peter yeah and so here we are talking about mindfulness and meditation going into the next decade well now it's it, it, it's almost starting to get mainstream in the sense that google had their mindfulness expert there who's wrote the book on it and took it on the road. Mm -hmm. I know Whole Foods does work with this. So it's not, it's no longer in the realm of crazy when these big brands and big companies are actually including it in, as part of their corporate culture. That's right. And I think places like uh, Unplugged Meditation in mm -hmm. LA, where I teach a few times a week, you know, here you've got a, a former fashion editor from Vogue and Glamour. Mm -hmm. This was not her wheelhouse so stressed out, needs to learn how to meditate, is driving all over Los Angeles, getting stressed out, and says, why isn't there a blow bar of meditation? But it's got to be a place that maybe my husband and his VC guys will want to actually show up. Well, okay, what are we going to do? We've got to strip away any overt spiritual language and Sanskrit and prayer hands or namaste. That's all got to go. We've got to actually strip down to what works what really works to get people into meditation. And as far as I can tell so far, you don't have to sign up or leave a religion to do that. <laughs> right. So that I think adds to the ability to bring it into meetings. Now that people know, Oh, this isn't religious. This is just neural hacking basically. Yeah. Yeah. I've experimented with bringing it into keynotes and speeches and it, it, I, I was actually surprised because I thought that there would just be resistance. But when it, I think if anything just has to be less than a few, uh, you know, five minutes and people, mm. people can do it. And that can be the entree. I wasn't going to take them through a half hour, an hour of this. But and I said, you know, I have done this at Google when I consulted there. And then people just relax and they say, oh, if, if Google did it, I can handle this for three minutes. Maybe I'll be cool like them. <laughs> <laughs> so Unplug, that's actually where we're having the event tomorrow night. That's right. Yeah. And... So I'm going to tell everybody about the, the, the concept of this, that I was talking to you about how um, I see speaking moving from the model of the rock star to hip hop, where it's been this guru model, right, of, of that person on stage. They're the expert. They're literally higher than you. You're sitting there listening, and, and they hold all the power in the room. And it's changing, you know, to this to something more like hip hop where there's collaboration, where people are coming together, where there's more than just one star and people are on each other's albums and helping each other out. And I see the speaking world evolving to that. And I, I, I see it as a result also of um, the words and the language we're using. You know, management started out with this military terms and it still is words like target market, execute, employ, 
um, terminate. All these come from the military. And we're moving into team-based analogies where you've, you've got teams and we coach our people rather than manage them. But what I see emerging right now are these network-based terms. People are starting to use network analogies, computer analogies. The word algorithm is going to start to be everywhere. I've got an algorithm for my marketing. You know, it's this formula that I use, coding, programming, debugging when something's not working. When a, when a culture program comes in, they'll probably say, we're going to install this. You know, these computer-based analogies that are from this network world. And so my, my experiment that you're now part of um, tomorrow is how do we do this book event that's not me just being up there talking to the crowd, but how do we create that network effect? How is it you and I uh, in collaboration on stage and in collaboration with the audience? Because we haven't planned this. Um, we don't quite know what's going to happen, but um, that's the intent. You know, it seems like over time, different management gurus or leadership gurus in that old paradigm would pull on statements of seeming truth from different traditions, one of them being the art of war, another one being Taoism, the Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu. And there's this famous sutra, doing without doing, everything gets done. Mm. Doing without doing, everything gets done. So as I'm with you, I'm, I'm almost in the room seeing with you tomorrow in advance. Mm -hmm. And that question is ringing, what is the bare minimum of doing allows the culture that wants to emerge in the future to come forward now. Right. Which really jumps back or harkens to this, uh, this work that Sharma is doing, leading from the emerging future. Yeah. What is it for a whole group of us tomorrow night to co-sense the emergent future and let that lead how we interact, how we speak, and any prototyping that might come out of that? So I know you, you've educated me on some of this stuff, like the idea of listening, that we can listen from the past, we can listen to from what we're sensing in the moment, we can listen from the future and what's emerging, um, these different stages of listening. And, and you've brought up one of these in terms of, 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 of listening and what's emerging from the future. In your experience, is it, is it that we'd go straight to that, or would there be a flow of even maybe starting from listening from the past, going to the present, and then the future? My experience so far, and I'm really watching myself daily. As a matter of fact, when we did the six-week intensive, very intense intensive, there was this tool called a presencing, present moment awareness tool, a presencing tool to assess our own listening. Mm -hmm. Out of these four stages of listening, what percentage of the day did I spend in each one? Mm -hmm. And something about being able to check in at the end of the day in a notebook or online made me more mindful during the day. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I've noticed is it's not bad for me to do the first level of listening, which is downloading the past. It's not bad. It's not right or wrong. It's just not new. Mm. It's like I've got this photo album in my head of everybody I've ever met. And so when I see you, Robbie, instead of seeing you as you are right now, I might likely be pulling up the last photo in my photo album and relating to that instead of you. Mm. That's downloading the past. Oh, he's going to say these things when I say those things, and he's going to be this way. Is there a positive side of that? Like, like you know, when we're reminiscing or we're having fun and joking around and relating in that place? Yeah, like nostalgia. Yeah. Yeah, like a photo album. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not going to ditch my photo albums because it's somehow, <laughs> you know, less culturally advanced. <laughs> right. I kind of like my memories. Yeah. 
Although the little ones with the kid, you know, me and the <laughs> duck, and the, that, nobody needs to see no, those. No, no, they really don't. Those are secret. <laughs> <laughs> so then moving into the next level of listening, that's probably where, you know, late 80s, early 90s started to really move the center of gravity of business, which is so-called dialoguing. I'm listening for new facts. That's about it. We're actually, I'm listening more than I was in level one. But level three is where it really gets interesting. Empathy. Am I actually tuned to what's going on over there with you while we're speaking? Mm. You know, if I'm really paying attention, I can feel that you're open mm. to the conversation and I can feel when you close. And it doesn't behoove me or you to keep talking when I felt you close. Yeah. To skip over that moment is a waste of energy and time. Yeah. And there's usually really valuable information in that closure. Either you need another moment to process, I'm talking too fast, or something else altogether different that it would be good for me to ask you, hey, what's up? What have you received so far? What do you understand about our conversation? Are you with me? Do you need to take a break? Yeah. So how do you have a distinction around, because you can actually literally feel it, right? Yeah. So With training. Right. So where's the distinction around... Um, that you're picking that up from me as opposed to it being your own feeling. That's part of the training, I think. It's First of all, for any of this culture hacking, I, in my own view, need to be my, my own best laboratory all day long. Mm. I need to be observing my own interior all day long. If I'm not aware of my interior, then it very well could be my stuff coming up that I think is you. But I at least get the chance to ask. So what do I mean by my interior? My thoughts, my body sensations... And emotions. I need to be able to be aware of them. And ideally, if I'm going to sit and listen and be with you about anything, even reading the phone pages, I'm aware of my interior, your interior, and in some way, listening to the space between us, which is rather alive. Yeah. So you've you've obviously practiced this a lot. You work on a lot. You teach it. How how can somebody just start? Like with how would they just get a taste of what you're talking about? I would say going back to the very beginning of our conversation mm-hmm. with the brief dropping inside, getting quiet moments we had, start to get familiar with that. I've got to know what my baseline feels like when I'm neutral. Mm-hmm. So how do I do that? Well, maybe I spend five minutes a couple times a day just taking a few deep breaths, softening through the body and listening. And not just listening for my own thoughts, but listening, you know how when you listen to a whisper, Mm -hmm. a whisper you really want to hear, there's a way my whole body is reaching towards you to hear what's going to come out of that whisper. Mm. If I listen and act that and listen to my body and emotions and nerves, so to speak, that way, I start to have an observational capacity that comes online. I'm carving the neural pathways for self-observation. And again, right out of the theory you, Otto Scharmer work, the work is predicated on us bending the beam of observation back towards the quality of myself as the observer or us as the team. How are we looking? So that takes some training. So just sitting for a few moments throughout the day, checking in. What's my body doing? What's my breath doing? What are my emotions doing? Yeah. What are my thoughts saying about this conversation? Yeah. That's a big leap for a lot of humans. Totally. Totally. And then from there, I, it starts to grow naturally. 
I'm able to keep checking in while I'm in a conversation at the gym and I'm just playing with it. I'm experimenting, I'm exploring. Mm. And then maybe I'm able to be aware of it in a board meeting when I'm not the speaker. And then bit by bit with more training, I'm able to deeply listen while I'm speaking, not just to myself, but to everybody that's listening. Yeah. And that's where the magic comes online with that fourth level of listening, Mm. where the emerging future can be co-sensed about our business or about um, education or economy or something that we're working with, sensing the emergent future. And how do I know that I'm in level four? Yeah. You and I walk away transformed in some way. We walk away more connected in a way that nobody has to tell us, restored to the big S self, our most expanded experience of self, whatever that is. Right. So I, I know we're talking a lot about this conceptually, but I know if in in a direct conversation, I've had it with you, I've experienced it with you. It's like you can you can read these things and you can sense them and you bring them out, and it's it's very powerful. And it can almost, especially to somebody who wouldn't be experienced in it, and I am experienced in it, but somebody who wouldn't be would almost relate to it like a superpower potentially, and or they could feel like they're being um, judged. Yeah. So. Is this a power? Like, can this be used in in negative ways? Absolutely. You know, you ever watch True Blood? Long when, time ago. Okay, season one. Mm-hmm. Eric Northman, the the blonde Viking vampire. He says one of the most brilliant things of the whole series. He says humans are easily manipulated through their thoughts. Mm. So if I'm not free from my thoughts, if I think that they're really my thoughts, then I'm manipulatable by the media, by CNN, by the latest, you know, viral craze on Facebook, I'm manipulatable. Mm. My emotions and my thoughts are like a dog chasing its own tail. They follow each other. Mm. Those electrical impulses in my nervous system breed more thoughts that are similar, which breed more of the same electrical impulses in the nervous system. Yeah. So I'm not really present. Um, and if that's my life, then I will, will feel if you come in and try and interrupt it, even with a loving stance, I will likely feel judged and assessed. Mm. And maybe as the culture hackers, we know that in advance and we don't take it personally. We learn more bedside manner. Maybe that's humor or lightheartedness. Yeah. Or ways to name what's arising before or during while it's arising in the person. Yeah. Knowing that there's going to be, you know, in the for those of us who saw The Matrix, when Neo got woken up, I mean, he threw up when he was shown The Matrix. <laughs> That's probably a very minor reaction compared to what some of us could have. Right. Yeah. What's coming up for me is this idea of being impressionable, too. You know, like going on stage for hypnosis. You got to be very impressionable, and if if you are, it can be a lot of fun. A lot happens, and I find myself being very impressionable because I can get very empathetic, and I can, you know, be in touch with people and hear concepts and ideas and get very impressed by them. And I'm I'm just out loud wondering that difference between being highly impressionable and being vulnerable to to manipulation. That's an awesome question. Suggestibility. Mm-hmm. Impressionability. As I really think about it and kind of feel into it, a big piece for me has been having somebody I trust to reflect with me. Meaning like I've had a mentor or a teacher for the last several decades. 
who's somewhat further down the road than me in some of these areas mm-hmm. that I can check in with. Totally, totally. Without that, I'm left to just what I know pretty much. Yeah. Or my willpower to just, you know, sit for hours of meditation and just hack through and learn the hard way. Yeah. Yeah, mentors are key. Absolutely key. And it's interesting because I feel like you and I, we've got kind of this peer level thing going on, but we also have very different domains of knowledge and experience that, um, um, you, you, you know, like a mine in terms of corporate, yours in terms of the mindfulness and meditation. And we, we, we can speak a similar language, especially with what's going on in organizations. And it's interesting to, in this conversation for me to notice a fear coming up with you, mm. which is that for the event tomorrow, because we got this book launch, you know, I'm like, okay, this is the first time I'm actually going public with the, the event. I want to try this experimental concept, which is cool. And, you know, we're going into unplugged meditation and I'm kind of like, like this, it's this interesting fear because I totally trust you and I totally connect with you. And I've got this fear that like, this is your home turf. This it's like your, your place and you are, you have such a powerful energy there and you're such a powerful teacher there that you on stage, it's, it's almost like this egoic response of, I think Scott's going to get all the attention and and I'm going to be of support of that because I so admire you in that place as that teacher and that powerful, mindful presence that you'll attract that whole attention. And I will be supporting that because I, I feel that energy and that power. And it's this got this like interesting jam in my brain of like, wait, no, this is this is my event and this is my book launch and I want that attention. Bam, that is so perfectly said. And that's what goes on all over life and culture. Hmm. This is how leaders get taken out. What do you mean? It's this unconscious thing that isn't spoken about so much outside of, you know, formerly maybe so-called spiritual domains, but it's common. You see, empathy, how do you know what you're feeling is yours? Mm. How do you know you're not preemptively, because you are so, as you say, empathic, and time and space, I don't know what to say about those other than, you know, names for something, but I don't know how, how permeable or impermeable they are. What if you're feeling the fear and concern in advance for some of the people who are going to be in that room for whom this information could be earth-shattering. What if you're actually sensing that because you're invested in the outcome Mm. of delivering the highest possible return to everyone who shows up? And that simple bit of being invested is enough to connect you empathically to what they're dealing with in their bodies and in their emotions. Yeah. Just enough. And without, if you don't, check in and ask, you might think it's yours. And then what happens is these egos get into collusion with each other. My story corroborates with your story and nobody grows. Right. If I can take you out and it's not conscious, but if I can take you out with my egoic story about how I can't grow any further and you buy into it, the new story doesn't get told. Yeah. The new culture doesn't get birthed. Right. So I do think that you're pointing at something here in real time Mm -hmm. that can start out sounding really esoteric, but with enough conversation around it in the world, we can tease it out and come up with some principles to be aware of it in organizations and work with it and go beyond it. Yeah. Huh. Like, does an example principle come to mind? Well, the silent pauses we were talking about. Right. Just to that opportunity to pause. You know, how many of us converse like a tennis match? I talk, you talk, I talk, you talk, 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 talk. But what if we just had these pauses after each person spoke to let the particles settle? Yeah. To let myself reflect on what you just said 
check in with my own body chemistry and let it settle and then see what really is useful to say next right. or if anything is useful to say next. Right. Just that alone could be an emergent principle that everyone agrees on in the board meeting. Yeah. Or in the strategy meeting. Yeah. Especially in a strategy meeting where we're wanting to get out ahead of the curve with our product line or with an intellectual property. Well, if we're going to get ahead of the curve, we have to listen in a new way mm-hmm. and interact with each other in a new way to birth something that hasn't been. Mm-hmm. So pausing might be a really good start. What do you think? I, to me, there's, there's a lot of power in questions. And that a part of it um, that I'm realizing with this structure, and it's, it's, it's in some ways by design, is that like you're like a guest on my show right now. So in this dynamic, I'm, I'm asking you a lot of questions, right? And, and it's cool and it's fun. And I think that, that some, there might be a principle around that for the event that we balance it, that we balance your questions to me, my questions, the audience's questions. Because if all those are in balance, I think I can feel good. But if, if, if I'm on stage and I just keep asking you a lot of questions... It's like an interrogation. <laughs> well, that, yeah, it just it, it, it feels off balance. So well, did I don't, you feel it shift when I said to you, what do you think? Yeah, there's a there's a body of knowledge called action inquiry. Torbert, um, mm-hmm. I can't remember his first name, but action inquiry. And there's these stages of like, first I tell you what I want to discuss, then I give you the backstory, then I formulate a uh, my my question, and then I check in with you. What do you think? Mm. Like, there's these stages. I don't have an exact right now, huh? But we usually skip, so people over overdo the detail stage. A lot of times. They're giving yeah, me all the backstory. All the story. Why yeah. the heck are you telling me this? <laughs> right, right. What do you want? <laughs> I feel a hostage. <laughs> and then never check in. Well, what do you think? Yeah. Or what are you up for? What is your experience of this? Yeah. So I'm happy to come in tomorrow with that as a principle over here to keep checking with you because you're a huge reservoir of knowledge. And I learned so much spending time with you and through your questions, but to keep checking in and reflecting back what do you think, Robbie? What's your experience to this? What are you seeing? Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, it's so simple, but so powerful. I love it. That's that's what I think hacks are. You know, so simple, so powerful, high leverage, low amount of input that you don't have to invest a lot, but high amount of output. Yeah. Yeah, and if we're both doing that work, like I'm aware of my interior, I'm listening to it, and doing my best to listen to yours, mm-hmm. and vice versa, we'll sense like, oh, Maybe it's time for one of those check-ins. What do you think, so-and-so? <laughs> or maybe, you know, they're full in the audience. I, I wonder what you experience around this when people are full informationally, mm. taking them into an experience and the balance between oh, information and experience. Wow, I, that just helps me frame this speech I just did in England. Wow, because what I was on stage, keynote of you know, hundreds of people in Europe, and I'm I'm in touch with their with their um, with the energy state, and most of the time I I really have them engaged. Like there's just no movement, nobody on cell phones, everybody's just hanging there, right? And then there was this moment where I switched, and you could feel it and see it. There's the the little micro moves. Oh, they shift in their chair, they look around, they breathe, like something that I I I, I felt or thought that I lost their attention. And it's, it's fascinating to hear this distinction you're talking about, about when people fill up 
with information and then need to process. But I kept on talking, which is why like the kind of that discomfort in their body happened of, wait, I still got to process this. That's right. We were talking about it earlier in a light way about when it's one-on-one dyad talking. If I feel you close and I keep talking. Yeah. Like then I'm going to feel my body's going to let me know. Emotions are not some big thing to lay on a couch for 30, 40 years. Sorry, therapists. But, and I know there's great therapists out there who understand a bigger view of emotions, but there are electrical impulses in the nervous system that animal bodies have to adjust behavior. That's it. Yeah. And then we moved on from two dogs fighting over a bone. They fought, they've done, it's sorted. And what do they do? They shake. They shake their bodies out. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I'll have people stand up and do what I call the seven shakes in my, wow. in my, you know, group work. Yeah. Or turn around three times or go into a triad and just share. Yeah. That's awesome. One of the ones I learned on that too was I heard a speaker on stage um, say, everybody exhale. Ooh. Yeah. I think it was Nicole Daydon. Um, it was just, she could feel everybody holding energy is that a trigger name there for you what was oh that? i just happen to know what they're up to oh yeah they're up to some intense they like stuff. to ohm yes yes that's a whole another culture <laughs> that's a different different <laughs> show <laughs> um she's an amazing uh, incredible te- teacher and and um she can she can really read a crowd quite well she did a lot of work with landmark education did she yeah i didn't know that back in the day did and and what landmark did you do did you do any? Oh my goodness. I did just about everything they have to offer. Wow. In the centers division, I think everything. And then some of the wisdom courses, the wisdom division courses. So part, I could see you loving and part of you must have been dying because they so focus on head, just sitting in your body there and just being in your and talking, talking, talking. It was part of you just like dying to get up. Uh, yeah, but it was at a time when I was really in my head. I've struggled most of my life to become lucid enough to get out of my head and into my body and feel my feelings. Yeah. You know, um, you and I were talking yesterday at lunch about highly empathic people becoming basically overdeveloped cognitively. Mm -hmm. And it's like this unconscious thing that seems to happen a lot with people who are really sensitive to feeling emotion or energy in the space. Yeah. Whether they know it or not become really developed cognitively, it becomes a place to put my attention to not have to notice how much intensity my body's feeling. Right. I'm one of those people. Yeah. Super, super sensitive. So I was really loved concepts and structures. I uh, had a conversation with um, somebody who used to lead programs very, very deeply for that education. And we were having a conversation about emotional intelligence. And I said, you know, my experience on the whole has been that that's something that could go deeper there, mm-hmm. emotional intelligence. And he yeah. said, you know, I wouldn't have known it when I was leading, but looking backwards, I would absolutely say the same thing. Yeah. So the, the I love this distinction around somebody who's very heady or talky could actually be very sensitive and just blocking that. Do you ever have this? I definitely do, where, where you're talking to somebody in that mode and all you want to do is just like put your hand on them and say, hey, just just breathe a moment. Yeah. Like, do you ever do that? Yeah, yeah. You can feel their nervous system is like <laughs> ramping up like a, like a puppy, you know, like, <sighs> and you're like, hey, it's safe. Like, it's just me, dude. Yeah. I'm here. We're here. It's all good. Yeah. Want some water? Yeah. It's alkaline. I, I, I think I've done that and also come at it from some sort of place that wasn't as maybe playful or nice because I've done that. I think it was on a date once and there was, <laughs> it did not get a good reaction. Where'd you like, put your hand? <laughs> 
Safe touching, Robbie. Safe touching. Yes. Ask first. Tell tell what you're going to do first. May I place my hand on your shoulder to soothe your overactive imagination and nervous system that's freaking me out? Exactly. But the I mean, we're laughing, and I think that's that's a principle. You know, maybe one of the principles is like pausing between speaking. Maybe there's another principle about really discovering real humor. Mm. You've been doing all this work with stand up and um, improv, and really getting into that world. Yeah. And, that's part of, I think, what makes my friendship with you and our conversations, even about things where we've almost gone head to head about Obamacare or whatever it was we were talking about, easier. One, we know we care about each other either way. Mm-hmm. So that's there. That's that's just not going anywhere. And then two, oh, we're getting a little serious. Let's lighten the mood a bit. Yeah. Without getting, you know, rudely sarcastic, just lighten <laughs> the mood. Right. What do you think laughter is? awesome it's so great it's it's just so it's weird to me that like especially with stand-up right that it's literally a bodily reaction it's not a thought it's 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 a body reaction wow yeah hadn't thought about it that way well i've been told that the i mean i have people laugh when i take them through breath work particularly Uh in a group experience and one, to dissipate the seriousness and the heaviness that can come up. Two, it shakes up the diaphragm so I can breathe more deeply after the laugh. Mm. But I've been told, and I haven't looked to see, that the heart muscle physically sits on top of the diaphragm that as a big laughter erupts, it's there's a slight massaging to the heart muscle. Huh. It'd be interesting if that's true. That could be. I remember talking to a healer who said laughter is just love. That's all it is. Hey, why not? Why not, right? It's better than a sharp stick in the back. <laughs> yeah, I love it. And it, it's been fascinating how, with, with stand-up, how many times I don't know what's going to be funny. You know, you just, you think it's this thing, but it's actually this other thing. They erupt on this one, but the thing you thought they were going to, there's silence. Hmm. I'm really interested to hear more as you study this mechanism, like, what you're suggesting that that there's something that's not cognitive it's not thought out it can't be plotted out necessarily that there's something there's a something or other there's an x factor around laughing laughing yeah yeah i want to figure out that x factor because there there's uh, what i can see there's two distinction of it there's one which is joke structure so joke structure is basically you say a premise like what you're going to talk about you say something weird about it like, isn't it this weird? And then you do something to add either hyperbole or craziness or reverse or opposite. And that's where, that's called the punchline. That's what makes it funny. And then tags, where you add to that humor. And you can, if, 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 if we actually sat down and watched some stand-up comics, I could show you each stage of that, even through a story where they're setting it up, they're telling you something weird, they're going some crazy direction of it for the punchline, and then they're adding little funny bits to it. Huh. And and it's almost like that flow diagram we were talking about before, where you can you can see that. Does that make sense? It does make sense, and it's bringing me back to I did four years of conservatory and acting school mm. for my undergrad, and I don't know being on camera really. I do know being on stage in the live environment, and that the, there's a feeling like there is with you and I sitting here. There's a I feel you, I feel me, and we're carrying each other. Mm-hmm. And there's that feeling on stage. The audience is as much a part of the show as the people on the stage. And there's that feeling. 
So I think somewhere in our discovery here, it's that empathy again, that if I'm, if I'm trying to be funny, but if I'm there to be funny, it somehow is emerging out of my felt relationship with you. But if I'm just in my own little private world, if I'm funny, it's accidental and great. Mm-hmm. But there's something about my relating or my connecting, my felt awareness of you mm. and riding on this, this unspoken stuff that we all feel, you know, maybe science would say the mirror neurons, how we pick up what each other is feeling from even miles away. Yeah. Yeah. Where, where it's most bizarre is have you ever just, just gone up to somebody you know and you both just start laughing. Yes, Isn't, all the time. All the time. Yes. I rarely get it. I love it. But like, you, you, like, you didn't even <laughs> say anything. You know what I mean? I mean, just talking about it. I don't know what this X factor is, but it's evocative. Uh huh. Like, I just want to burst out and laugh on the floor and like roll around. <laughs> Have you seen those videos? <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, we found your trigger. <laughs> found the button. Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> Once it goes, it's like two kids in church, man. You are so red right now. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Have you seen those laughter yoga videos on YouTube? Oh right, that's like those laugh. Those are those clubs in India. Right? Yeah, they clubs. laugh for an hour. The clubs. Who? <laughs> Once I was given this exercise. To laugh for an entire minute out loud. To look at a stopwatch. It took a lot of work. I tr- I've tried it in workshops sometimes. It starts to like, hurt. Yeah. After an hour? <laughs> somebody peel me off the floor. <laughs> I might even need depends. Right. Apparently they've gotten really good at it because they have this laughter competition. Come on. Yeah. Like, like, like a concert. It's a laughter competition. And these people get on stage. And it's not so much even about like how great they are at laughing. But they... <laughs> they they are it's the infectious laughter so you'll see somebody laughing on stage and you'll start yes. laughing yes what is that what is that i don't know what is that that <laughs> x factor there it is again yeah so i say in my experience of you know working with people and groups and in culture that whatever that is mm-hmm. that there's already a name for it we've seen it in other domains that that is the x factor of what makes a leader charismatic and effective at being a change agent whether it's through laughter, mm. whether it's through teaching meditation. I mean, I think that, you know, if you look back at Zen, they'd call it a transmission. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That there's something that's actually transmitted or mirrored, if it's neurons, but there's a transmission of something. Yeah. If I'm in my head and in my persona and trying to prop myself up as being the guy that's got the answers when I go in, you know, like the hero consultant then all I've got is a suite of written tools maybe that I can hand out. Mm -hmm. My experience continues to show me that the interior that you and I, when we go in and consult with, that presence, that's the X factor. Mm. And that there's, there are probably even more efficient ways to get into the presence of laughter is a presence. Yeah. Is a presence. I bet if we sat and we kind of, just started to have the intention to tune into the center of that presence. Right. We'd naturally start laughing. Mm. Naturally, though, like not in a canned way. Right, right, right. What do you think about all that? <laughs> um, it, 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 
what hit me about the term X factor, there's some kind of sexiness to it, right? You know, that, that the mystery itself kind of drives us and that like I could hear, I could, I could imagine a leader listening to this and thinking, what's my X factor? You know, is, is it laughter? Is it presence? Is it something else that these guys haven't even thought of? But that's my X factor. The X factor that can be named is not the eternal <laughs> X factor. Exactly. The Tao that can be named is not the eternal Tao. Yeah, totally. I, we're, we, I have a feeling, and we talked about this at lunch yesterday. Tell me what you think. That some of these things are not new. It's just when we get our mind out of the way mm-hmm. and our, stop sucking on our own exhaust and just listen some of these natural organizing principles of life come into the foreground and can be utilized skillfully. Natural, does a natural principle come to mind? (laughs) Yes, but it's not appropriate. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I'm thinking about in, in my minimal experience of yoga, Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a body of yoga that talked about muscular energy and organic energy. Like muscular energy, you know, I can move my muscles to whatever degree I have the ability mm-hmm. in certain ways. But then there's another type of energy they called organic energy. And I'm not even going to pretend to have the ability to articulate that. But I think that's in the realm of the X factor. Things like intention. Mm-hmm. You know, we'd start talking about your intention affecting the outcome or your intention affecting how I experience you. Yeah. When it's alive and real, not just a thought. So my instinct is that there are a lot of different names or ways into this hmm. X factor. Yeah. No, I bet. I'm going to go back to the inappropriate for a moment. So it was gas. I'll be no, honest. No. It was just gas, passing gas. Okay. But so <laughs> I, what I was thinking about was in terms, because because I immediately just think sexuality when I think inappropriate, right? That's, <laughs> that's where things You're the get only really man inappropriate. Who would do that. Right. Because um, I was just talking on a radio show this morning about how um, they were saying people separate the personal from the business. And I said, that's not true for me. I think all business is personal. All bit. Bu- all, we're all doing business together. It has to be personal. Yeah, I don't but, leave my personhood outside the door. <laughs> right. But where it does get a little like a wall into distinction is around emotion. Hmm. Um, sometimes certain emotions are welcome and certain ones aren't. Hmm. And it got me thinking about that, that sex is such a powerful drive that we, we do have an experience of it when it is inappropriate at work. We get the first thing that you do is you get the sexual harassment um, videos and talks That's and right. things that you need to know, all the things not to do. I mean, it's very clear that there's a strong presence of it there. And the, in the business world, we just get that negative sense. But it makes me wonder also, since it's something that we really can't turn off. No, and I like, think it is something that we can tease out and have a deeper understanding. And in that deeper understanding, for me, I've found more freedom around having it. I have a tremendous amount of it. But I choose to look at it as evolutionary energy now creative energy oh sex and creation being similar the same energy yeah, yeah. it's procreation mm-hmm. or create you know to create the one could say that the bee has sexual energy with the flower mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. Or it's mm-hmm. turned on by the flower something in it is turned on in its system by the flower that gets it to go over there and pollinate so <clears throat> if i have a wider understanding of how that moves or of love you know how many of us have had inappropriate crushes 
what if mm-hmm. there, what if the notion of of deep romantic love doesn't mean we're going to have a romance or have sex? It could be uh, I have this deep feeling of love for you, and I want to look out for you. I don't want to have sex with you. I don't want to have a relationship with you. Or you may not even be the in the gender of my preference, and then it gets confusing when I have a certain depth of feeling for you. Mm. But if I begin to have space and understanding for all of that, then I have access to energy. I'm not suppressing anything in my nervous system. Right. Because I think if we're going to create, we need a lot more energy. Totally. To innovate. Totally. We can't suppress anything. Yeah. Does that get out? Yeah. And there, there, there's, there's, there's got to be levels of it, too. Because our mutual friend, Dave Logan, he's actually talked about how um, with some of the best, strongest teams, they, they get in um they're, they're sleeping with each other like literally uh, kind of you know even bands do that uh you know, like fleetwood mac sure that kind of thing right where it's it's, it's literally like that so yeah. that's that's one end of it one extreme right and but what's i wonder what those subtler differences are between just absolutely keeping it out and making sure everything's you know okay let's go there for a second so think about if you've had has there been a time when you've had the most mind-blowing physical connection with another person like it started out sexual Mm -hmm. so it goes it goes it goes and then it reaches a moment at least it has for me where it's no longer physical sex there's there's like my mind stops Mm -hmm. there's a a losing track of where my body begins and that person's ends Mm -hmm. there's this it's a whole other experience that i can only call like a deep meditation that's in movement profound So what if we could hack into that because there's a tremendous amount of energy in there without having to relegate it to only happening during sex? What if I could have access to that rocket fuel Mm. without having to deal with the so-called physical sexuality aspect of it? Yeah. And I don't mean avoid it, but just it doesn't have to be about that. Right. And I could free it up and have all this energy. Yeah. It's a good question. I think I think culturally it's just starting out. I'm just starting to hear conversations like this emerge. Like Esther Perel's work, I don't know if you know her work. I don't. Um, her book is called Mating in Captivity, and she talks about how there's no safe space to talk about cheating, infidelity, desires for other people within a relationship, and that all that energy can be there, but they're... they're it doesn't have to happen, but the idea of what does a safe conversation around that look like such that the energy, at least, can come out. Another great read is Robert Augustus Masters. <clears throat> he's not the expert on this whole subject, but he's really done groundbreaking conversation. Uh, transformations through intimacy. It's a study of awakened monogamy. Mm-hmm. So maybe I've already tried monogamy, and and then I've maybe been polyamorous for a while, and then I discover I want to be with one person because I'm actually committed to the most mm, embodied wakefulness I can get to, and I know that being in a relationship that's committed could bring up everything. <laughs> but we've both got skill sets to not over-process in language, but to actually name what's arising and and stay connected to the relationship even when I want to cut your head off mm. I stay connected to my love for you I stay connected to my care for the relationship and I know something's coming up in my nervous system and we in our space together have the crucible to deal with this like that yeah I love that so I think authentic communication transparent communication yeah and that's 
you know, Ken Wilber in his integral work says you can't skip stages. Probably the same thing is true. There are stages of a relationship and you can't skip them. Yeah. They may go quickly, but we've got to build that relatedness, that connection, that trust. And there are ways to do that. Have you come across that thing from the New York Times a few months ago, like 25 questions of fall in love? Yeah, we talked about it on the podcast too, yeah. Okay. Do you know anyone who's done it? I do. It, it all the way with the four minutes and everything? Uh, the people I know have done like several sections, then taken a few days or a week in between, uh-huh. but not all the way through. Do you? Were they two strangers? Oh, no, they weren't. That's what I'm curious about. I, me too. <laughs> but I'm, I'm nervous to try it with a stranger who I'm not attracted to. <laughs> right. Totally. Oh, geez. This is, this is uh, the How to Fall in Love with Anyone New York Times article for everybody listening. Um, but uh, we actually did that at, uh, at David Data's event. You know David Data? Yes. Yeah. So one of the exercises we did was we did 20-minute stares huh. saying certain language. And it was incredible because the first one was about love. It was all this loving language. And one of them was on attraction. And start off with somebody I wasn't attracted to, but the staring and the saying things and getting embodied, I was attracted to this woman by the end. And what he said, he was great about the boundaries around it. He said, look, don't go up to anybody after this. This is not the point of it. It's not to build that. Why we're doing this is because if if you can get attracted to somebody you've never been attracted to before, imagine what this can do for your relationship when you feel like the attraction is leaving. Beautiful. Wow. Wow. So what happened when you took it into your life? I don't know in particular. I mean, it was, I don't know, seven years ago. Okay. Um, it was profoundly powerful, though, just that, that um, kind of what you're talking about, about that ability to just hold a lot of sensation in my body and be with it as opposed to doing something to get away from it. When you're staring into somebody's eyes and all that sensation comes up, and you have to stay there for, for the exercise. You can't turn on your phone. You can't check your email. There's n- and no, none of these things that we do to distract ourselves yeah. is available. So that experience of just no choice but to feel it. Well, this seems to come back around to, do I have the ability to witness myself, yeah. to observe myself? If I don't, man, oh man, I've got to learn that. Otherwise, every time I have a thought or a feeling, I'm run by it. Totally. In the way that's familiar. You know the zebra exercise, right? What, don't think of a zebra? No, no, no. How you, okay, just real quick and simple for you and for everybody. Make your inner voice right now silently say on a loop, I'm a zebra, I'm a zebra, I'm a zebra, I'm a zebra, over and over again. Mm -hmm. Is it doing it? Yeah. Now, can you notice that you're not actually the voice? Even though you can impact it, you're listening to a voice in your head. You notice that? Right, right. You're the listener. Yeah. Now, just playfully, just for the heck of it. Well, first of all, are you a zebra, Robbie? Last time I checked, no. Okay, good. Because I'd send you to a therapist. Okay. Bend the beam of your observation. Just make it up that it's easy. Instead of tuning into the voice that's saying, I'm a zebra, and keep it going, bend the beam of your observation back at the listener. Just start to observe the listener. What are its qualities? Yeah, I, I, to me, it's it's um, a, a nothingness. It just is. The act, just the act of doing it, though, regardless mm-hmm. of what qualities you're aware of, just mm-hmm. the act of noticing it, that's a huge shift for a brain. You're you're actually taking a perspective that's not normal and ordinary. 
Mm-hmm. You're not being run by the thought I'm a zebra right now. Or if that, you know, let's say, I don't know, you're going out on a date and you're like, haven't gotten a haircut in far too long and you catch yourself in the mirror <laughs> and it's a date you want to go out on. You're like, that little voice has something to say about it and then you start to feel crappy on the way to the date. But yeah. if it says I'm a zebra, oh, of course, I know I'm not a zebra. But if it says something about something I'm invested in, I start to listen and then my emotions get involved. Yeah. And then I'm not present. Right the way that I could be. So I think that teaching meditation in a way that people are willing to let it in yeah. is the most important thing. Like, I've got to have access. I'm not my body. It's changed without informing me or sending me emails. Mm-hmm. Here I am, 43. Certain things ache in the morning if I don't stretch. <laughs> you know, it. I, I can observe my thoughts. We just did that. And I can observe my emotions because they're just sensations through the uh, nervous system. Yeah. Well, so then what the heck am I? <laughs> and when I begin to get a sense of that, mm-hmm. then if the urgency or anger or upset comes up in the relationship between you and I, it's not going to take me out. I'm not going to start throwing plates and stop listening with practice. Oh, I'm having this come up and I can be intimate with it. I can hang out with it, chill with it, listen yeah. to it, and you. Totally. Now imagine like 12 of us on a team sensing the emergence of an economy, a new economy that really works for the world we're using instead of using up one and a half planet's resources and a huge wage inequality. Like what, what would want to be birthed? 12 people who have that level of capacity with each other and themselves staying in something as loaded as the economy or education. Mm-hmm. And for days or weeks, coming together and sitting and just beginning to let that emerge, sensing what could be. Right. That's cool. You got something like that planned? It's, uh, maybe it's getting birth right here. <laughs> could be. Maybe some listeners are going to take it on. <laughs> could be. Well, if, um, if somebody's really driven and inspired by that or by anything that, that you said, where would they find you? Scott at Trust thebreath.com scott s-c-o-t-t at trustthebreath.com yeah three words trust the t-h-e breath b-r-e-a-t-h and is that is that a website that's up too it is it frames me uh in an older body of work i need to get a a new site up it shows me as a guy who takes people primarily through breath work Mm -hmm. one aspect of the work doesn't really get into the culture stuff at a leadership development my linkedin a little bit does that Mm -hmm. but Basically, I live on Facebook, I think. <laughs> How many friends do you have? <sighs> More than I can keep up with. <laughs> you, I had that recently. Do you go through them and you see like, who is this? How did I meet this person? Oddly, I know most of the people. Oh, good. Yeah, I've got probably over 3,000 people, like 32 something. And I know 85% of the people personally from some time in my life. That's great. They say they say one of the, like, the, the you know, have you heard of, of these stories about Bill Clinton being magically charismatic? Yes. Yeah, so one of the things they say about him is you could have met him 20 years ago, and you'll see him now, and he'll remember your name yep. and, like, something about you. It's just mind-blowing. You know, that's a funny thing, because I find that when people are really present with me, and if I'm really present with them, and if we've met, I'll remember what we talked about. I'll remember what the quality of light was in the room, the smell in the air. Wow. But if, if they're not, if they're awkward or not present, mm-hmm. I might not remember who they are. I'll just remember their face. 
Whoa. It's like if we're both with each other really yeah. here, there's this, we talked about it yesterday. It's like there's this universal iCloud that's totally. got everything that ever happened recorded in it. Like yeah. You just kind of <laughs> download it. <laughs> that little whistle is universal for download. <laughs> <laughs> we'll keep developing this. You might become president. My whistling? N- your uh, charismatic, charismatic memory. Although you got to learn to deal with the awkward person. Actually, let's let's end on this story. I'd love it if you'd share how you've experienced that feeling when you realize you're feeling awkward around somebody who you mentioned actually a particular celebrity. I don't know if you want to say them by name or not, but the the the, the essence of the story was a cool story. Yeah, I won't name names because we never know who's going to listen. Right. Everybody's in a different place on a different day. Yeah, and there are a lot of celebrities listening to my podcast, so you never know. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, she might have had the wrong kind of beans for dinner the night before. Who knows? But I was at a small children's party at a friend's house in Hancock Park. I don't know. This is about 10 years ago. And there were probably 12 kids. It was a birthday party. And then like another 12 adults. And one of them was this A-list celebrity whose movies were currently out and doing huge at the time. And I just walked over to her and started talking. And it was like this weird kind of presence between us that my body started to get tense in my chest and my belly. And I was already working for the number one talent agency in in the world at that time. I kind of was off the Kool-Aid of being nervous around celebrities. But I started getting nervous. I thought, this is so strange. And there was like this formality, this gap between us. And I remember thinking to myself, and I said this to you, I was like, look, I don't want to have sex with you. I'm gay. I don't want anything else from you that I can think of. You just, you're here and I'm here and we're at this small party and we're in the same room together and we're the only two adults in this particular room right now. So it just seemed appropriate to start a conversation with you. And I thought you were nice because my friend's pretty cool. Yeah. But you said you 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 actually felt so awkward you couldn't even speak correctly. Yeah, it made right? it hard to speak. And yeah. I've noticed this around people of great influence at times. It's like there's something, and I don't know for certain, in their space around their physical body, like a like a protection energy that's very dominant and strong and mm-hmm. like scrambles the eggs in the minds of anyone that could come close. Test your metal, really. Can I stand in myself? Mm. Or am I look if I'm looking for any degree of validation from you, consciously or unconsciously, and some part of me unconsciously had to have been for me to get awkward. Totally. Some part of me had to have been. Totally. So <clears throat> if I can know myself well enough to, to soothe my own nervous system at will, emotional intelligence, and just be there. And if you're available, great. And if you're not, I can ask you, is now a bad time? Is it a good time? Is there another time? Yeah. That's awesome. I love that distinction. You know, because uh, I think awkward has become such a, a buzzword <laughs> and to have distinctions around awkward. I went to a class on awkwardness at Burning Man and we actually work to create awkwardness and learn distinctions and learn how it feels and talk about it and process it. And it's a word that's thrown out there so much and people can feel it. And this kind of idea that actually maybe it's not even my awkwardness I'm feeling. Maybe it's a result of this relationship and it's, and it's, it's not quote unquote me is is a fabulous way to think of it. Well, if you think in the animal domain, animals need to know when there's harm in the in the space. Mm-hmm. That's all it is. Mm. Fight or flight is actually biological protection. You know, in tooth and claw times, dinosaur times, you needed to know. Right. And through mirror neurons, if my body went into fight or flight, so did everybody back at at the at the teepee. Yeah. There was a real evolutionary protection to it. So it's actually just the ability to pick up on what's going on. And if I can do that 
without letting it take me out, then mm -hmm. it becomes intuitive, useful data Yeah. on how to work with the crowd in the room. Oh, they're full. Let's take them into an exercise or let's take them into the laughter club moment. Yeah. Huh. It makes me wonder if, if early civilizations had no verbal language and still communicated that way. Because there's even this there's even this interpretation, the Kabbalistic one, I believe, of of uh, story of Genesis that original sin is language, because what happened before language, everything was one. There wasn't. I didn't have a name for you as Scott. I didn't have a name for this as computer. But once I name it, this is computer. Now it's separate from me. Mm. And so God, the idea of everything being one, we were all one until. Uh, humans created language, and language created the entire idea that we can be separate from each other and from God. The Tantric uh, scholars from the Middle Ages would say it in their own way. They'd say, when the sense of other arises, fear arises with it. Mm. Wow. It's profound. Yeah. Yeah, to really digest it and and use it skillfully, you yeah. know? It's one thing to go around telling everybody, we're all one. <laughs> it's another thing to actually be it. And I'm a work in progress on yeah. learning that one. So how about this? We'll close on, uh, on on something we love about each other. And I'll start with what I love about you. Then do we get to hold hands and sing Kumbaya? No, none of that. You got to right. get out ah! of here after that. Don't come near me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness. I love that you are someone who holds these these polarities as I sense them of that you can be somebody who's so zen and pieced out and legitimately, like even around you, I and others just feel a calm and it's, it's, it's real and it's peaceful and you have both techniques and language and feeling around it that one would associate with hippie, but you are also such a badass. I was telling you about this at lunch, you know, that, that you, you, you can go into harsh language, you can swear, like you can, you can relate in all those ways. And I, I, I just rarely ever see those worlds together. And it's like you can bring them together in your own persona. So I'm excited to see what you do just in life, holding those energetic worlds and how you could bring these disparate groups together. Wow, thank you. Yeah. Goodness. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> uh, wow. Thank you. And also, really, thanks for having me on the show. This is this has been just such a great conversation. It's fun, right? It is. And that's really one of the things I love most about you is that every time I have a conversation with you, I walk away feeling really awesome. Like I just had a great experience. Mm-hmm. I had a great experience. I didn't just talk about stuff. I had a great experience. Mm. And each time we hang out or connect on the phone or talk about business, I feel like it goes deeper. You have this capacity to, to surf whatever's happening and play with it. And you're funny. <laughs> Thank you. You know, you've got this sense of humor that so makes it all a lot more fun. Yeah. It's not just this dry business. It's really fun. It's totally. fun to hang out with you and discover and create. Totally. Awesome. Well, I can't wait for tomorrow. Likewise. Uh, yeah. Book launch at Unplug Meditation Studio, the co-created event. Y'all better be there. You're going to be a rhombus. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks for being on the show, Scott. Thank you.